Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, J.R. Miller, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and Christian unity. Paul in 1 Corinthians is pretty clear that there is one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Galatians talks about these things. That is our unity. So the Holy Spirit is the source of unity. And then our doctrine should be the reflection or what reinforces that unity. J.R. Miller, next. Dr. J.R. Miller says the debate over the baptism of the Holy Spirit often threatens the unity and love which should exist in the body of Christ. To bring healing to this discussion, as well as a theology of spirit baptism, Dr. J.R. Miller has written, One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, Spirit Baptism, and Christian Unity. He teaches Christian worldview at Grand Canyon University. Joe, tell us why you wrote a book on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This book is sort of been a, a a project of love that I've put into together over several decades. Uh, things started for me back when I was actually an undergrad at Penn State University. I was actually involved in a campus ministry there. And the question came up back then. I led a group of, a disciple of the group of guys from all different backgrounds. And one day somebody said, well, what's spirit baptism? What is that in the Bible? What does that mean? And I I had to confess, I mean, I grew up United Methodist, but I I mean, I really didn't know the answer, what biblically that was or what that meant. And that sort of started me on a journey through that. Um, After I I graduated, I started as an engineering student, but then ended up feeling God called a ministry, went to Oral Roberts University, which obviously sort of the, I I like to affectionately consider the center of the Pentecostal charismatic universe, Mm -hmm. Uh, just because it's one of the, I think, I still think it's the largest uh, Pentecostal charismatic uh, university in 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 the world, as mm. far as I know, mm-hmm. uh, at least it was back then. And uh, and as I got involved on campus, this question of spirit baptism came up, and there were some different understandings that I had. Uh, and, and I saw this was so important. I was studying with some of the you know these leading scholars in this area, and I had a lot of questions. And and at the same time, I saw a lot of. Um, I saw a lot of hurt coming around this doctrine, a lot of people being hurt spiritually around this doctrine, and not always for the fault of the people teaching it, but just it had a lot of conflict around it. So I really wanted to put some time into how do I approach this topic in a way that could be winsome, that could be healing, and and also faithful to the scripture. Mm. And and you write uh, in your book that this particular doctrine, which we're going to be discussing, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, has divided believers more, you believe, than any other issue, than any other doctrine? Yeah, I I don't think that's exaggerating as far as I can tell, but I mean, I'm certainly, you look at church history, there have been a lot of divisive issues and topics mm-hmm. related to just the nature of Christ. And I mean, there's certainly very significant doctrinal issues that have divided us. But I think in terms of this the proliferation of denominations if you look back into the early 1900s when this doctrine took sort of center stage in the united states especially uh i really think that there are thousands potentially maybe tens of thousands i mean it's hard to count it's hard to really track some of this stuff but you know i I think this doctrine of who is the holy spirit and how does it relate how does spirit baptism relate to our salvation in christ seems to have sparked uh, thousands of denominations, all claiming they had the right view of this better than the one that they split away from. And so, yeah, I, I think it becomes, especially within the American experience, uh, but even then ultimately globally, uh, I think it's been a source of 
uh, intense importance, the role of the Holy Spirit, but then also intensely divisive. Mm. Well, what is the baptism in the Holy Spirit? I know this whole conversation will unfold that. <laughs> yeah. So my view, I mean, this is where I take it is, I think the language of the New Testament, uh, I think is fairly clear that spirit baptism is the immersion of the believer into the death and life of Jesus Christ. And I think Romans 6 uh, kind of really brings that home for us in that uh, we have this outward reflection through water of what happens inwardly, spiritually, uh, for the philosophers among us, ontologically, right? There's a nature change in who we were. We were lost, we're found. We are the old man, we're the new man. But all this happens as we are buried with Christ in his death and raised with him in the newness of life. And this happens only through that immersion into the death and life of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think that's the force, the imagery, the power of what spirit baptism is in the New Testament. Okay, and you write uh, early on in your book that it is by God's design the hallmark of Christian unity in Jesus Christ, going to uh, the subtitle of, of your book. Explain to us how that's, yeah. how that's so. Yeah, so a lot of times it's interesting, we throw around the word unity a lot mm -hmm. uh, today in, in, in many contexts, right? We talk about, let's uh, we saw the Southern, not to bring up another controversial issue, but I mean, it's just the Southern Baptist, the whole thing, women as pastors and all this whole sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so we see people on all sides throwing the word around unity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we can pick any issue of contention. Unity always is the the, the sort of the, the cry, the clarion call of what we need. But I think, unfortunately, what, what I think we mistakenly do is think unity is uh, something that we create through confessional agreement or through even doctrinal agreement. Mm. Now, I don't mean by that we need to dismiss our confessions or our doctrinal integrity. What I mean by that is biblically the concept of unity is built around a relationship on this sort of, again, this ontological thing, this, this new state that we are uh, this relationship that's restored to the Father through the Son. We become adopted into that family, right? So Paul in 1 Corinthians is pretty clear that there is one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Galatians talks about these things. That is our unity. So the Holy Spirit is the source of unity. And then our doctrine should be the reflection or what reinforces that unity. For Paul, it was the spiritual giftings, that the, the manifestations of the spirit. They weren't the source of unity. They were to be the tool that we use to maintain the unity of the spirit. That's his language, the maintaining of the unity. And so what we're then maintaining then is our newfound relationship with God through the person of Christ, empowered by his spirit. And, and certainly, um, there, there's something ironic going on here, and that's why you're writing, obviously, the book on one, mm -hmm. on one level, is that if the baptism in the Holy Spirit is by God's design the hallmark of Christian unity, and yet at the same time, it's been the most divisive doctrine, yeah. you said, why is it yeah. so divisive? Why is it so controversial? Yeah, that that's what so shocked me, I think, uh, in my own, really, as I studied this, as I dug into it decades ago, and I first started uh, in my time doing my MDiv stuff at ORU, uh, just what struck me is how I, exactly what you point out, the irony of that divisiveness around something that should be the centerpiece of our unity. Uh, and the historical study I do in the first half of the book 
first half is a historical study, second half is a sort of a biblical study. Uh, but that first half, it was eye-opening for me. And I felt like this is something that we should really understand that any doctrine that we have that dismantles, that creates this sort of divisiveness that was not designed by God. And Paul wrestled with that too, you know, the spirit, especially the spiritual giftings, right? God had given those to maintain the unity, yet the church used them for division. And I think that's uh, that's why the language we use is so important, but even more than the language, the way we approach and treat and honor one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, and as as people who have come to the foot of the cross as equals, equals, equal in our sin and equal in our need for that salvation. That really sets the stage for how we're going to approach these differences in our doctrine. Well, the book is One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, Spirit, Baptism, and Christian Unity. My guest is the author, Dr. J.R. Miller. He's a, a professor at Grand Canyon University. There must be some uh, people listening to this. They may be in churches, denominations mm-hmm. where this is not uh, a doctrine or it's not emphasized. Yeah. They, they may even wonder, what, what, what are we talking about? I've never, I'm not even very familiar mm-hmm. with this. To what extent do you think that is the case? Uh, I think within a, a, some circles, for for sure, there is not a clear a clarity of what that doctrine is. There's not a strong doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, and certainly the controversy around this is not clear either. Uh, I would throw my a lot of my I think maybe my Baptist brothers and sisters in that. When I, I first got involved with some of the Baptist, I planted a couple of Baptist churches. Mm. Uh, I joke with people, you know, I grew up United Methodist. I was ordained in the Christian Missionary Alliance, but I planted a couple of Baptist churches. But the first Baptist churches I was in were the ones I planted pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a new tradition to me. And there's some, I, I find there's great uh, brothers and sisters in, in all those backgrounds. I was surprised in some degree how many of my uh, fellow Baptists, when I talked about the Holy Spirit, um, they thought just even talking about Holy Spirit was somehow uh, charismatic or Pentecostal, like they owned it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the blessings of that tradition, the charismatic Pentecostal tradition, is the emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the doctrine of spirit baptism uh, is new to a lot of people. Even the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in some of our theology is not clear. So it is really, the book I think helps along those lines as well too, for those unfamiliar show some of the historical disagreements there, uh, but also why the Holy Spirit is so important that we understand his role in our life. And how would you respond to those who perhaps are just joining the conversation and they might say, it doesn't sound like this is a first order doctrine, like the deity of Christ Mm -hmm. or salvation in Christ alone or the Trinity or the return of Christ or what have you. So why not just let let it be a issue of Christian uh, liberty? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think in my conversations with people over the years, I'm, I'm very cautious to ask a lot of questions first. I think there's some way, there are some ways people approach this that doesn't cross over into a first order disagreement of, of salvation or disfellowship. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who th- their approach to this doctrine will create that sort of division that is really unhealthy. So, for example, um, you know, he, I, I quoted the book, a guy named Smith Wigglesworth, who's held up, you know, as one of these early proponents of uh, this, the baptismal Holy Spirit. 
uh, as a second work of of grace distinct from the work of Christ. So for those that are, are kind of new to this dialogue, as I outlined my position at the beginning, I said, you know, spirit baptism is that seal. It's that uh, it's that what unites us to the death and resurrection of Christ. For others, there's salvation as a first work of grace, but at some second point down the road, mm -hmm. there is a second work of grace that's completely separate from what Christ has done, but completely necessary for our fullness of our salvation. So you're not fully saved. Mm. You're not fully a Christian uh -huh. in the language of some. Some that say you can't fully love God. You can't fully love the Bible unless you have this second post uh, conversion experience exhibited sometimes only by speaking tongues, sometimes by other sign gifts or miracles, those sorts of things. Uh, so there are some like Wigglesworth who talked about, well, if you have Christ, what you have is this sort of dead, dry, lifeless thing. But only when you have the spirit, do you get the vitality and the life of the Christian. And I find that language really uh, crosses over into a first order type doctrinal issue for me. When you say that Christ's salvation is insufficient to give us a vital life of obedience mm. and love for God, I, I mm. think there's a problem with that. How does someone know if they are baptized in the Holy Spirit? In other words, it, it, mm -hmm. it sounds like they're, and I think your book talks about this, there's an element yeah. of, for lack of a better term, subjectivity. Yeah, so this is part of the reasons why that language of uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace, evidenced by, say, like speaking in tongues or some sort of miracle gift like prophecy, why it became so uh, powerful, because it gave a very concrete, oh, I can attach my knowing of this to a, a very specific outward thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you see in the language prior to the early 1900s when that doctrine took place, uh, it attached to things like holiness or sanctification or just you know, holy living, right? Yeah. But that comes very subjective. Like, well, how do I know? But how do I know? Well, because I did something. Well, if I do something bad, does that mean I don't have it? And so it was very difficult for people to manage that. I think actually in the New Testament, Paul is pretty, this is why it's pretty clear is, Water is not what saves us. Paul's pretty clear. But what he is clear about is when we receive, when we follow through in obedience to be baptized, immersed in water, that is an expression that's tangible. That's sort of the tangible evidence of the inward reality of what the Spirit has done uniting us to Christ. So water was meant as that outward sign, not as a, not as speaking in tongues or not a miracle, but water was the outward sign of the inward reality that gave concreteness to the assurance of our salvation in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, you're right. Uh, there's so much to talk about. And of course, there's your book and people can dive I know, right? into it. A big it. can of worms, I'm opening up for you. Oh, oh that's, that's quite all right. It's very interesting. And you write that the debate about spirit baptism revolves around one key passage of scripture in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 becomes the centerpiece in the early 20th century for, well, really late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, uh, with this idea of Pentecost, looking at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, as the model of what the church should be today. If they, it happened for them, that's what should happen for us today. And so this idea that that's what we need to recapture. And so Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes, he falls on those who are in the upper room and waiting, and there's tongues of fire, and they start speaking in tongues. 
the Jews who are gathered from all over the region, hear them speaking in their own languages because many of the Jews who were uh, forced to disperse from their homeland because of persecution didn't speak Hebrew, many of them. So they're hearing this sort of miraculous speaking in foreign languages, their language, the gospel, the truth that God has brought the Messiah, that God has fulfilled his promise uh, from Joel and throughout the Old Testament prophets. So this is becomes the centerpiece, and, and many the argument was, well, if that's what it meant for them, this is what it should mean for us, and we need to pursue today to become like that. And that became the centerpiece of the argument, essentially. And then it goes on from Acts 2, chapter 8, 9, 10, and 19 are the other key passages that sort of follow. But yeah, 2 is the beginning point of that, the linchpin. And you're saying that the, uh, the, the, the understanding of this doctrine of the baptism mm-hmm. in the Holy Spirit relates directly to what we understand as the sufficiency of Christ. Exactly. So if you, if you look at Acts as the early sort of Pentecostals did uh, in the early part of the 20th century, especially as um, Acts 2 is a model that we have to repeat, then what ultimately happened was there becomes this divide where salvation has to become before this event. So Pentecost becomes the center of our faith, not actually salvation in Jesus becomes the center of our faith. It's the pursuit of the uh, experience and then the languages or some ecstatic sort of encounter that becomes the center and the, the high point of our faith. Uh, And I think that ultimately is what creates a lot of division because everybody's going to have a different experience, a different encounter, a different uh, part of that, uh, what their life with Christ looks like. And so then we lose that center of unity being in the person of Jesus and unity then only becomes uh, what is the Holy Spirit done in you and how has that been manifested in you? And if you don't speak like I speak, or if you don't uh, have, if you didn't have the experience this way, the way that I've had it, then you aren't really a full Christian. And that's historically, now I know for a lot of people who are Pentecostal charismatic today, that's not how they approach it. So I I don't want people to feel like I'm speaking about all groups today. Matter of fact, I think that's less common today, which is why I hope the book uh, sits well with a lot of my Pentecostal charismatic brothers and sisters, because I don't think that, I think the church today has grown from that historic period. I think we matured past some of that. We still use the language that's, I think, uh, based in that history, but we don't, we're not quite as mostly is divisive about that as we used to be. But that's why it's so important because it says, what is the center of our faith? Is it the work of Christ or is it the work of the spirit? Because in that traditional doctrine, they have to be divided. They have to be distinct. And I would again say that they're not. They're all one speaking of one moment in our lives of salvation. Then we at that moment are empowered to serve and walk faithfully uh, in service to God. Well, the book is One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, Spirit Baptism, and Christian Unity. My guest is the author, Dr. J.R. Miller. He teaches at Grand Canyon University. So just going to the subtitle, and you, this has kind of been woven throughout what you've been saying uh, uh, today, Joe, in this discussion, but what is the connection then between the baptism in the Holy Spirit and Christian unity? Mm. Yeah, and well, that it is a really important question to, to emphasize and go back to, because I think this is potentially one of the most misunderstood aspects of what I talk about. And I think what the Bible itself is, is trying to reinforce to us. I think what Paul's message was, again, 1 Corinthians, the conflict over the ecstatic gifts, the tongues and the, and the, and the miracle type gifts uh, that the church at Corinth was having. He kept pointing back to him. He's like, don't you understand that all of us have been baptized into this life of Christ. Some are 
the hand, some are the eye, some are the foot. Don't all try to be an eye. Don't all try to be a foot, you know? Uh, and so his point is that if there's one gift of God, and this is the language of Paul uses, there's one gift, many giftings. The one gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit who ushers us into salvation in Jesus Christ. There are many giftings or manifestations of the Spirit. If our unity is based on that manifestation, then we all tend to say like, hey, I want to be the people who are eyes just like me. I want people who are hands just like me. Mm -hmm. We no longer have the foundation for embracing the power of diversity and distinctiveness that give us our strength as a church, because that comes in the work of Christ, the spirit, the one gift of God who unites us to the uh, to the salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ. That if that is our focus of our unity, then we can have differences, even theological ones on second and third issues. And it's okay because we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ because we all have that same salvation relationship through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so critical. Otherwise, we turn our secondary and you know third tier type doctrines into the benchmark the uh, of our of our unity. Oh well, you don't teach this or you don't worship like this. You can't be a true Christian. You don't love the Bible. So the understanding of our, our, of Christian unity along these lines of what you just described in Christ, in, in the Holy Spirit, that, uh, that does unify believers, that was Jesus' prayer, that uh, we would be one as he and the Father are one. Mm -hmm. So this directly counters what, what we see in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, that uh, where Paul was uh, critiquing the Corinthians, that I am of uh, mm -hmm. uh, Apollos, I am of Paul. I always find that pa fa passage really fascinating. Paul writes this letter at about Acts 15, between Acts 15 and, 16, or 15 and 16, roughly. There's a Jerusalem council. Hey, to be a, a real Christian, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow these Jewish legal practices. They have the Jerusalem council. They say, no, that's not what it is. It's based on you know the work of Christ and Christ alone, the grace of God. That the phrase, yes, some are of Paul, some are of Paul, some are of Jesus. And I always found that fascinating. How can following Jesus be division? Because that's what he's arguing. You're dividing by basically saying who you follow in this. Mm -hmm. And I think what I, what my take on that, the way I've understood Paul, what he's saying is what you're doing is you're, you're taking the name of an individual and you're using that person, even Christ, as a cudgel to defeat those people you see as enemies. But Jesus isn't the enemy of fellow believers. He's the one who inhabits every fellow believer through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Through his baptizing work, we are all of Jesus. So you can't use Jesus to say, well, I'm the only real Jesus follower, and you're not, if our unity is through the, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. What we can say is, hey, if you, what, this is what Paul, he always took people at the confession of their mouth, right? If you say you're a Christian, then I hold you to this standard. Then I, then I expect that you accept this particular doctrine. But he never questioned their faith commitment or that they were even Christian. He just said, if you are, then you'll follow this thing. And he let the sort of the chips fall where they may. We approach that differently. If you don't confess the way I confess, therefore I know I'm judging that you are not a Christian. And I think we, so when we reverse it like that, it becomes the recipe for uh, intense division where there doesn't have to be necessarily. Uh, right at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how, and your book kind of concludes with this reflection, that this has been the most uh, divisive or divisive issue or doctrine 
that's mm-hmm. divided believers more than any others. You said that uh, there's been a lot of hurt come out of it and conflict, and you, you're hoping that your book, One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, will bring about s- some healing. This goes back to the heart of why I even wanted to touch this sort of third rail type issue years ago and why I still am very passionate about this. Uh, my own experience uh, when I was at ORU, I saw many people uh, would go from event to event and they'd be pursuing the next sort of encounter with the spirit and they'd leave and they didn't get a healing or they didn't speak in tongues or something didn't happen and they would leave deflated or discouraged. Some would walk away. Some would say, well, you know, God, what, what's wrong with me? Why is my faith defective? And that's usually what it was put on as the mm. individual, their faith is defective. Well, something's wrong with you. Well, the truth is something's wrong with all of us. That's why we need the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Salvation by, you know, by grace through faith. Faith doesn't save us. The grace of God saves us. But if our uh, if we need to encounter God, if getting the blessings of God uh, in terms of what comes with salvation uh, only come through uh, sort of this perfected faith, then that becomes this giant works-based situation where people end up depressed and isolated and many walk away from their faith. And so my my passion in this, I guess, really is twofold. One is to help people in that situation realize that uh, maybe the reason you didn't encounter stuff is because you don't have to speak in tongues. You don't have to have a particular encounter just because somebody else did, right? That's what Paul's whole point is in First Corinthians. Don't pursue tongues, pursue joy, uh, love, peace. Those are the things that we are to pursue. You know, the greatest gift is love, right? That's what we're to pursue. Uh, but if if the goal becomes pursuing one of those outward ecstatic sort of experiences, it ultimately is divisive and deflating and, uh, you know, makes people feel like there's not true salvation. So that's the first part of that that I think is pursuing that. The second part is, I think when we when we frame spirit baptism as this post-salvation experience that's limited to a few group of people based on their willingness to tarry or to pray or to achieve these certain things, what happens then is uh, we end up making experience the center of our doctrine and our theology. And so I, I think that becomes very divisive as well, because, you know, the argument is, well, if you haven't experienced, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you can't speak to tongues. Well, wait a mm-hmm. second, that's, but that's the issue we're talking about. Um, it becomes, our theology becomes very man-centered as opposed to Bible-centered. If any doctrine is true, it should be true for all of us, and all of us can dialogue about it because we have the truth of God's word in front of us. So, you know, the emotional side, the doctrinal side, those two are really key pieces there. And I could add a real quick third. I want us to validate people's experience. You know, here's the thing is, the label is not as critical as what you mean by the label to me. And like, I don't really argue with people a lot of times that they use spirit baptism to refer to something else. I don't really jump in there. I usually mean, well, what do you mean by that? Or what are you saying from this? Are you saying that, you know, not all Christians have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Do you mean some do? Or some? I try to dialogue about what they mean by that. But here's what I think is important. This is the important, powerful, positive of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. It reinforced the need for encounter the need for daily experience with the Holy Spirit in our life. It's not that we should accept Christ and then, you know, wash our hands. I'm done. I don't need any more. I'm, I'm all set. Mm-hmm. We, I, I think we should all have dynamic 
daily, weekly, monthly encounters with the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who gives us you know, joy, who gives us a desire, who gives us knowledge uh, to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. So the more encounters we have the spirit experience post conversion with the spirit post conversion, the better, right? I mean, more great. So we, don't, I don't have to discount somebody's experience. At some point, just recognize I may be saying that the language you're using may be more divisive than you realize. So it doesn't mean your experience wasn't valid. Mm -hmm. It could be. I'm just saying use the scripture as the framework to interpret the experience. Don't use your experience to interpret the scripture. And I think if we can do it that way, we're going to be in a much uh, healthier place as a church. And ultimately, it sounds like this is a, a blessing to to study this, to consider this, because the Holy Spirit, he is a blessing that God has given to us. People, if you if you come and you're listening and say, oh, well, he's dismissing the language of second blessing. He's dismissing my life as a believer. No, not at all. Not at all. If God's spirit has spoken to you and done amazing things in your life, that I, I don't have a framework to say that's a false experience, mm -hmm. you know, necessarily. I mean, the fruit of it, you know, we can measure. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But I'm not saying, you know, de facto, yes, that proves that you're not a real believer. It wasn't a real encounter. All I'm saying in the book is that let's make sure our language doesn't create division where it's unnecessary by centering our experience as normative for the experience of every believer. Okay, let's value what God has done in our life, but let's value that he does it differently for other people uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that differences becomes the foundation for the power of how we live out our faith, our one faith, our one salvation in Jesus Christ. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. J.R. Miller, professor at Grand Canyon University and author of One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, Spirit Baptism, and Christian Unity. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Mark Lanier putting some of the world's religions on trial. The first question in my mind is whether or not the view is objectively consistent with the world. Um, we've got a world that's around us and we know certain things about that world with a pretty high degree of confidence. And so if I've got a religious system that says the moon is made of cheese, uh, I think I can dismiss that out of hand because it's not consistent with the world. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening. <laughs>